0: Thanks to ZipRecruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode. Hiring is really difficult. I would know I'm the co-founder of a media company that had to hire a lot of people. I wish we had used ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. My listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at at Recode. You may know me as the person who keeps sending pictures of my cat to Nat Geo, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by three executives from Nat Geo, Courtney Monroe, the CEO of National Geographic Global Networks, Rachel Weber, who leads the digital product team, and Susan Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of, Nas- of the National Geographic magazine. which how a lot of people think of National Geographic. Everyone, welcome to Recode Decode. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thanks for having Thanks for us. us. Yeah, thank so you. I want to talk about a lot of things, and I'm thrilled that I'm, I, I'm sorry to point out, but I'm talking to three incredibly powerful women, which is great, and I'm glad you're running the show at National Geographic, or Nat Geo, right? Is that how we call it? Whatever you want to Whatever call it. Whatever you want it, to call it. it okay. Okay. Um, I want to get into how you run a global brand like this because there's it's critical that you have all parts of what's going on and how you think about um, publishing and the information you get. So why don't we just – I want, do want to talk – I like to get people's background just really briefly because I think it's really helpful to people – how people get to where they got. Um, so, Susan, why don't you start because you're you're like me. You're from an old newspaper background or, or – tree media background.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I started out as a reporter. I was the intern they hired at the Seattle Post Intelligencer uh, when I was 20 years old. And um, I just have worked in, worked in newspapers then for the next 35 years. Mm-hmm. I ran <clears throat> two large newspapers. I was the editor of the uh, San Jose Mercury News, mm-hmm. also the editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Um, then I went to Bloomberg, and one day the phone rang, and it was National Geographic saying, do you want to come here? And so I thought for less than one second and said, absolutely. So, so
0: how, why? Because, you know, you come from a news... Obviously, newspapers are changing, and you and I both know that, but...
1: Well, you know, I always joke that it was uh, totally unexpected because I'm not a guy, and they never had a woman before. I'm right. not a visual journalist, and mm-hmm. we're known for visual journalism. Sure. And I'd never worked at a magazine before. So you're the perfect choice. <laughs> so I was the perfect choice. No, I really think the... Answer answer was because National Geographic understood we're not just a monthly magazine mm-hmm. right we are putting out news and information every day across platforms I'd been doing that my entire life right um, including on digital platforms sure. Sure. so that's how I, I that's why I think they now not only offered me the job but then promoted me twice in the next year
0: So see did I ask you before we, we go on to Courtney when you were thinking of newspapers did you, did you thought thought about doing another one or, or a traditional news organization how are you feeling about that that business.
1: About the newspaper yeah, business?
0: Yeah, to running two of the biggest, I mean, Jose interviews yeah. used to be enormous and yes. important, and then it wasn't.
1: and it's terribly sad because when I was there, we had 404 journalists, and mm-hmm. they're down to about 39. Right. So I think that the toughest part wow. of the newspaper business are the large regional metros, but we are seeing some real strength in the big national papers, in the Post, in the Times, in the Wall Street Journal. So it seems like those are the players that I think have the best chance to succeed. It's it's a terrible loss, though, for these regional metros to be in this level of trouble, and it really concerns me of how many fewer feet on the street we've got of journalists. Local. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm going to talk about that later, because
0: Google's making a lot of initiatives yeah. and others. I always, I just think that Facebook could give a ton of money and just pay for it, given the ruin they've caused across. I you don't ag- have to say that. But I well,
1: no, I, I mean, but I would agree that the, the financial model has really um, been... Uh, has just totally screwed local publishers
2: absolutely all right Courtney hi TV lady TV lady <laughs> yes um so I've been in television for a little over 20 years mm-hmm. um, I grew up as a marketing person um, then became a Content person, um, so of the twenty years in television, fourteen were spent at HBO, where mm-hmm. I ultimately grew to run the marketing division at mm-hmm. HBO, and then I joined National Geographic. So
0: responsible for its HBO,
2: it's it, no. that predated me. Okay, actually, well, no, it's HBO, yes, but it's not TV. It's HBO. Yeah, predated me, and then during my tenure, we shortened it to just its HBO. <laughs> um, we felt like the it's not TV money wasn't well Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, And then I joined National Geographic as the head of marketing for the television business and then became the CEO just about three and a half, four years ago.
0: So talk about the television business. How do you look at that? Because explain what National Geographic does in television. Because they have obviously the magazine. How many, Susan, how many in the magazine? How many? How many issues, subscribers?
1: Oh, well, uh, we reach 54 million readers in 33 languages across our print and digital platforms for the magazine. Wow, it's enormous. Um, I can beat those. Hers is more, she is more (laughs)
2: enormous. We're in 495 million households around the world in Mm -hmm. 171 countries just on the television business. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, we, um, you know, we're a cable business. We should say that National Mm -hmm. Geographic Partners, of which we are all a part, Mm -hmm. um, is a joint venture between 21st Century Fox and the National Geographic Society, which is a nonprofit organization. The television networks have been a joint venture since their inception. So Mm -hmm. we were birthed as a joint venture between Fox and National Geographic. And then I guess about two three and a half years, years ago, three yeah. years ago, this coming fall, um, 21st Century Fox expanded their investment in National Geographic, expanded the joint venture to include all of the media and commercial assets under one roof, now Mm -hmm. called National Geographic Partners. So the publishing business, the digital business, the travel and expedition business, um, in addition to the books business, in addition to the television business, are now part of this Mm -hmm. joint venture.
0: Which is now in contention over the Merger,
2: the possible heart of whatever we'll big transaction that happens. We'll see who you work for. Happens. We, we can see.
0: Well, I don't really work for
3: Comcast, but they're an investor. Mm-hmm. We could be either that side or the Disney side, which right. is interesting. All right, Rachel. So I have always been enormously passionate about the media business and TV in particular. I think I wrote my college essay on watching television and doing my homework at the same time. I wrote, you know, a big uh, paper in college around the changing role of women in television. Uh, So I was desperate to get my foot in the door there. Uh, My first role out of college was at News Corp, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing I worked on was putting together our annual reports. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty quickly, I worked on a really special initiative where we were working to take the company Carbon Neutral, and it was modeled on what Sky had done in the U.K. Uh, It gave me this enormous exposure to uh senior leadership around the company and really to how our operations worked um, internationally uh, so I ran that for a couple of years and then but I really felt like I had my nose pressed up against the glass of the fun stuff uh, so got a chance to move out to Los Angeles I worked at one of our TV studios for a year uh, moved to Sydney where I worked at uh, Foxtel our big pay TV platform uh, which was a, a kind of a perfect moment in time because all of our deals were coming up with the film studios mm-hmm. uh, we did a big deal deal with HBO, BBC, so we kind of restructured uh, the premium tier, rolled out our first video on-demand products. Then when I was ready to move back to the States, I really felt like I just I wanted the experience of being at a digital first and kind of a product and engineering culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moved to Tumblr, uh, worked on partnerships there. This is pre-Yahoo, right? This was pre-Yahoo. It was pretty mm-hmm. early on. I was employee like 50-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, then a friend called and was at Rovio which is wow. the company uh, that makes Angry Birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, you know, Why I- didn't you work? <laughs> Uh, well, that, those were my years, kind of in working in these digital-first environments, right. and uh, so worked at Rovio, started in a broader business development capacity, uh, then so uh, essentially making the little birds famous on other platforms, exactly, and doing big partnerships, and then quickly started running our video business. Uh, we had an animation studio, so we were selling our animated shorts. I was running around Mipcom uh, with kind of flyers and palm cards, just trying mm-hmm. to do deals, uh, but then we realized we were reaching, you know, almost a quarter of a billion people on a daily basis directly on the platform. Uh, So we built out this video product that sat on top of the video games platform. Uh, So much fun. uh, You know, learned a ton about the mobile space, about fandom. Uh, Then, you know, after almost three years of going back and forth to Finland, Mm -hmm. I was pretty exhausted. uh, And was just kind of craving taking that product experience and moving back into more of a traditional media world. Uh, Ended up going back to Fox spent a year on the corporate development team, uh, worked really closely then across our TV businesses, And same kind of thing, you know, when this opportunity came up, because obviously I was in the Fox world, uh, it was something I couldn't pass up. It was, you know, a unique chance to work on a brand that's incredibly meaningful in people's lives, uh, where you have this kind of built-in direct relationship with these consumers, uh, an incredibly powerful brand across social platforms where we can really build experiences. Um, Yeah, and found myself in D.C. uh, Great. This is a great background, because I want to talk about this idea of how you create a
0: brand anymore, because National Geographic... I mean, Susan is the magazine to most people, but you can't operate like that in today's society anymore. I mean, you can't think like that.
1: Well, I think it's the magazine to a number of, of people, and, and it certainly resonates around the world. Mm-hmm. But I think to an awful lot of people, it's also uh, the TV channel. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to a lot of younger people, it's, hey, we follow it's you in- on Instagram, on Instagram, Instagram. Mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's the Instagram generation. So mm-hmm. what is so cool is, you know, our content really reaches people. Um, throughout throughout this you know, ecosystem of ages and interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think you just heard a little bit of that right here. Mm-hmm. You know, here's Rachel coming up with a digital first, you know, background in me. I'm from the newspaper business, right? Mm-hmm. And Courtney's somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. in TV, and that reflects our ages and experience. So it's actually really cool being colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, so let's talk about how you all work together. Let's talk about the brand itself. How do you all see, is it run as one brand? When Yes, you it is. It? Okay.
2: And in fact, I would say it's broader than just on the media side of the mm-hmm. business. We mm-hmm. think of it it even with our partners at the National Geographic Society as right. one brand. Mm-hmm. And I think in consumers' minds— And this mind, is, explain the National Geographic So the National Geographic Society is the nonprofit part of— Because people don't the differentiate. They mm-hmm. definitely don't, which is to the point, I think right. we it's really important that we all— operate as one brand because from a consumer perspective, it's certainly one brand. So the National Geographic Society is nonprofit, and they uh, give grants to real-life scientists, conservationists, explorers, educators um, to do real-world science. And and 27% of the proceeds from National Geographic Partners, where we all sit, go back to help fund more research, more science, more conservation. Such as? as, oh my gosh, we just had the explorers. Such as Beverly and Derek Joubert, who are big explorers uh, engaged in wildlife preservation. Um, The Okavanga. The the The, explorers who are um, working to save the Okavanga Delta mm -hmm. in Africa.
3: A ton of marine biology, a ton of conservation work. We have a massive Pristine Seas Initiative, which has really preserved an immense amount of the ocean. Um, You know, we feel that 95 percent—we just heard this the other day from Bob Ballard— 95% 95% of the ocean. He,
2: he found the Titanic, by yes. the way. No, yes, yeah. I, I remember.
3: <laughs> <laughs> has not been explored, yeah. you know. So, a, a number of our grants are actually going to researchers right. and scientists in that field. Right.
1: But what's so cool is so they go out there and find mm-hmm. all this stuff and do all this stuff, and then we can turn it into stories. Some mm-hmm. of the most compelling, amazing stories that we then push out across all of our platforms. And, of course, a story in the magazine is going to be different from a story on Snapchat, or a mm-hmm. story on Facebook, or a story on television. All right,
0: so Tell me about how you think of your stories, each of you. Because you because for Courtney, for example, you created a bunch of fictional series
2: around inventors. We've done we did a uh, one big scripted anthology series that we do now called Genius, mm-hmm. where we profiled um Albert Einstein mm-hmm. and then most recently Pablo Picasso. The lion share of what we do is nonfiction documentary. You right. were actually in one of our shows with right. Katie Couric. Oh yes, I was yes. with the Couric, yeah. Yes. Everything she says, I have to. Oh, that's good. It's another. It's fantastic. Everything she says I have to do, too. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lion's share of what we do is in documentary and nonfiction storytelling. Mm-hmm. But I think there's so much connective tissue across all of the platforms. I mean, when we think about the National Geographic brand, we think about creating really exceptional premium content around lenses like science and innovation, exploration, adventure, certainly wildlife and animals, the human journey, culture. So no matter what form it takes and no matter what platform, there is a tremendous amount of consistency in all of our interpretation of that brand, um, what people want to engage with and immerse in on the form do. and how they do yeah. it is different in Snapchat. But still, the North Star for all of us consistently is the National Geographic
0: mm-hmm. brand. Okay. So talk about the like, story, for example. One of the stories that you did that got a lot of attention was the race story. Um, talk a little bit about that because I thought that was—because that went crazy on social media, for it, example.
1: It did. Um, almost— um, Uh, even more than our gender issue did did, did the year before. Mm -hmm. But we decided to do an entire issue devoted to the subject of race, coinciding with the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., but also because race has become such an... Really ugly conversation in this country, and what light could we shed to try to get people to understand each other better and mm-hmm. perhaps have a more civil conversation? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I thought in doing in doing this and in kicking off a year of stories about race, we kind of needed to own our past, mm-hmm. and so I wrote a note to readers saying that while there were so many things that we are proud of in the 130 year of National Geographic's history, our coverage of race you know, before the 70s certainly, is not something we were terribly proud of. And I talked in some very specific ways. And that conversation just went crazy. I thought we absolutely had to be transparent and, and open about this. But I guess people were surprised that, that we would have done it. I, mm-hmm. I saw no way not to have done it.
0: Right. And how do you think of it in terms of digital then when that was it?
3: Well, we thought about it in so many ways. I think one of the things... Because
0: this is an issue where you talked about how bad, how, how you had gone yeah. into, I how mean, National Geographic had gone into countries and grabbed things they shouldn't, that kind of stuff. No,
1: it wasn't that or so depiction. much as exoticizing people right. in other countries, you know, right. happy hunters, you know, savages, that kind of thing. And then in our own country, not acknowledging or reporting on any people of color, essentially, mm-hmm. until after the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm.
3: One of the things that we did around the race issue was create this campaign called I Define Me. It was actually the first time that we put a hashtag and really like a call to action on the cover of the Mm -hmm. magazine. And what we did was, you know, we really had really kind of a thesis that this was something that we actually wanted to enable people to engage in the conversation of what race meant to them in their lives. And if we were going to be out there saying that, you know, race is a, you know, what the science of race is and the kind of social construct and have a conversation around that, then how do you create your own identity and how do you want to express yourself? You know, we had in a, it's a small number, but we had in the tens of thousands of people that organically used that hashtag that were opting in to express themselves and say, I don't define me by the color of my skin. I don't define me by this heritage or that heritage. I define me in this way. That felt like a, actually a big hurdle for people mm-hmm. to engage with us on that subject matter. So that was one way. You know, another way that we think about content experiences in across digital platforms is through our contributor network and kind of a participatory experience through photography. So we have this really robust community called Your Shot for really aspiring photographers. Uh, and we did an assignment uh, that corresponded with the race issue around visualizing identity. Uh, we get in the hundreds of thousands of images submitted for every single assignment that we do. We turn that into storytelling uh, through picture stories, through shots of the day. Um, So it's really through kind of taking kind of an engagement where you may lean back and kind of reading and consuming something and also activating it in some sort of participatory fashion. And then in the visual, the video department,
0: Mm -hmm. that was accomplished how?
2: Well, what Katie. Oh well, Katie. So yeah. in the, yeah, I was like, wait, oh, yeah. so the six we did this six part series called mm-hmm. America Inside Out with Katie Couric. Right. You joined us for the tech addiction right. um, episode, but several of our other episodes tackled it. One in particular um, was sort of the whitewashing of the monument issue mm-hmm. in the US. And so Katie was down in Charlottesville. It was a lot talking about race in that issue. So she we used Katie Couric to tackle the topic on on in long form video.
3: So so go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think one thing, an interesting thing we learned from the race issue that we're working on now is the challenge we face on digital platforms is sometimes the disaggregation of content and stories. And so we're constantly working and, you know, kind of how we work together, you know, our teams are really intertwined in that, you know, if if Susan is creating an incredible editorial experience that has visuals and immersive storytelling and obviously text and editorial to it, um, we're figuring out how do we distribute that on digital platforms in a way that's going To preserve the integrity of that story together. Uh, You know, for example, you know, we have a story coming out, we won't talk about it, but it's something that can't be, you cannot see images on their own without the context of the entire visual story. And so, you know, we've had a photo editor on Susan's team working hand-in-hand with our vertical team that, that creates for Snapchat, Instagram stories, etc., to create an experience that is going to kind of keep it as a whole and of a piece, while at the same time, it's actually built for that platform that it's on. Right,
0: that, that's created for it.
3: We're going to talk about how you do that
0: in a second, because that's a really critical thing in media companies. I think it really is lacking still after all this time. The internet- Internet's still confuse media companies and how they do it, and they do it in kind of in a piecemeal way um, because there's other ways of storytelling. We're going to uh, be back and take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a minute with Courtney Monroe, Rachel Weber, and Susan Goldberg from National Geographic. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Sure, your bank or PayPal can get your money from A to B, but that transfer will cost you more than it should, a lot more. That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends, Tabet and Christo, who were frustrated by their banks' bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise. People sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee. So it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said it's important that my bank gets some extra money. Test it out for free at TransferWise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's TransferWise.com slash podcast. It's the wise way to send money. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter,
1: who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. This week, I talked to Keech Hagee, great media reporter over at the Wall Street Journal, who has a very cool book called The King of Content. It's all about Sumner Redstone
0: and his wild, crazy life building and then kind of losing a media empire. Currently controlled by his
1: daughter, Sherry
0: Redstone. Uh, it's an amazing book, um, and there's kind of a, a fictionalized version about on HBO right now. We talked about all of that. Plus, we talked about Fox and Comcast and Disney and Vice to Boot. It's a Got a lot
1: packed in there in half an hour. You will enjoy it.
0: Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, I'm here with the National Geographic, I don't know, Brain Trust? Is that what we call it? Sure, yeah. oh, totally. Yeah. We, we call we would, it that. I'd welcome okay. that. Thank uh, you. It's Courtney Moreau, Rachel Weber, and Susan Goldberg. Uh, they each run a different division of National Geographic, and I wanted them here because I wanted to uh, talk about how you coordinate these kind of things. So I think media companies really don't think... Uh, very hard. It's super hard, and often it, digitally is there an afterthought. Or if it's digital, the, the editorial is an afterthought. So I'd love to how you all make those adjustments because I think it's a really important thing for digital leaders to understand. That I find it difficult, and I think I'm pretty digital first. I find it I'm always pushing and pulling between in between the group.
1: My own view is that you always just start with a great story, mm-hmm. and then you you know you set out trying to tell the greatest story in the world, and you figure out how you're going to do that and how that will work on other platforms. And the best way to do it is that when you when you have it across platforms and from the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. When you're not playing catch-up at the end of it, like we never just produce a magazine story ever. We produce... You used to, though. Of course. You know, that that was, you know, the history certainly of National Mm -hmm. Geographic. It's 130 years old. But now we've got cross-departmental teams and cross-functional teams meeting to create the content from the beginning that will make sense and will tell the story the most effectively across platforms. I think we've got a great example of that right now with our June cover. On plastics. Yeah, this
0: plastic thing is so disturbing. So it, it, well, it is. This is a beautiful graphic, though. It's a picture of an upside down plastic bag. Um, and it says 18 million pounds of plastic ends up in the ocean each year, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And it's looked like an iceberg, essentially.
1: Well, that has been a terrific um, example of taking our content across all platforms. So explain this. Explain this. Yeah.
0: So go ahead. You first. Well, I mean, first. well,
1: we started out with the, you know, with the story and the and that strong photojournalism, sending writers and photographers mm-hmm. all over the world taking images like nobody has ever seen before. Mm-hmm. But then there became a great social campaign, and Rachel should probably describe that.
3: Sure, so this is another one where we actually kind of put a campaign lens to it. Uh, Meaning we you wanted people to do things. We wanted someone to, yes. And we worked really closely with our, our brand uh, and marketing team that really led this effort of kind of weaving together how this could work across all platforms and really putting the consumer's action in the center of it. Um, so we set out to ask people to take a pledge. We, you know, gave them all the facts and figures. Plastics is an issue that, um, you know, unlike something like climate change, it's very clear, specific action that you can take to mm-hmm. reduce your own single-use plastic use. Uh, we have almost forty thousand pledges um, that we've gotten from from our audiences across platforms. You know, we reached. I think at this point, we're at probably six hundred million impressions um, across all the across the campaign with uh, all of our content that we created for. Uh, Taking our magazine stories, but then also creating a lot of infographics, a lot of kind of snackable insights. Snackable. Uh, we've done profiles. Do yeah, we've done profiles of our explorers working in the space. Just this week, last week with our explorers festival, we had incredible stories coming from scientists working on the plastic issue. Uh, Heather Caldaway um, has been doing incredible work. We've we've learned some really scary things about plastics entering into. Uh, Entering into a fish's bloodstream, even potentially even getting into their brain. So, I mean, it's not the most uplifting, but we've done profiles of her work. We've kind of woven those stories into a lot of our communities. Um, So it's just, it's a constant topic that we're going to be taking on really for the next three years. And to Courtney's point, too, about our connection with the society, um, the society is going to be kicking off and we'll have news soon, um, you know, on on some really big plastic initiatives and support that we're making in the space to actually have action backing up. Uh, the storytelling that we do.
2: What I was just going to say is, you know, back to your question of how do mm-hmm. you bake this stuff? How do you how right. do we do this together? I think we all you know, share recognition um, that in today's marketplace, it is so hard to right. break through right. Right? Right. with mm-hmm. the stories. And so what an incredible benefit that we have to have this massive global portfolio across all of these different medium to use at our disposal, to tell our stories, to amplify, you know, issues like plastics that we care about um, or issues about race that we care about. Um, and so to Susan's point, you know, we bake a lot of these stories from inception. We green light stories to mm-hmm. Together mm-hmm. and figuring out, you know, how how could this become a tent pole that could really work across all platforms? And I think plastic is a perfect example. That's something that's not a one and done, as mm-hmm. Rachel said. That's something that, you know, it's so germane to who we are as a brand um, that this is something you'll see storytelling over the next several years. You'll, mm-hmm. you'll see us using our global television footprint to, you know, interstitials. Call to action, get people involved. So this is something that's kind of a big initiative for all of us going forward, and we have the power to do that. That's the beauty of this portfolio um, and the reach of this portfolio across platforms.
0: Well, think about though in the in the video In this one, I, the, one of the visuals I thought was great, in this one was the throwaway living picture, which was they were happy about all the plastic. Yes, there.
1: from Life magazine, Life magazine, I think mm-hmm. in the forties or the fifties. Like, Yay! You know, don't so need that, all this don't stuff. Don't anything. have to wash Just dishes. Toss it out. But, you know, one of the things that we can do, and I think we have great brand permission to Mm -hmm. do it, is to give people actionable information so they feel like they can do something. Mm-hmm. I think one of our challenges as National Geographic, as we take on tough issues, whether it's plastic or climate change, a lot of people want to run screaming from the room when you right. put the mm-hmm. words climate change together, right? right? They don't right. want to hear about it. Right. But what we can do, I think, is pull people into the stories with our visual storytelling, our incredibly unique approach, but then tell them, hey, here's some things that you can do about it to make a difference. And I, There's a lot of power in that. Absolutely. With, there's 100%. Just, And I think also, you know, uh,
2: in an entertaining and immersive way, too. So, you know, we did the documentary Before the Flood with Leonardo DiCaprio Mm -hmm. when we, about 18 months ago or so. And that was, you know, a highly. Immersive way in, and you know, with a big A list talent to talk about climate change. When we did, you know, when we tackle the topic so of gender. So nobody will listen unless Leonardo DiCaprio's. Well, people about it. listen more. Okay. You know, they'll watch I'm okay more, with right? I'm yeah. Good. Me too. Um, you know, when we when we tackle the topic of gender, you know, we did um, a single topic issue that you did, Susan, in the magazine, a ton of content digitally. And then Katie Couric did an incredible two hour documentary called Gender Revolution that was really, really emotionally engaging. So, you know we can still tackle these topics that are very much aligned with the National geographic brand, but do it in a way that captivates people's imaginations.
0: I, I want to talk a little bit about the breaking apart of of disaggregation of everything because mm-hmm. I think that's really hard I mean right now,
2: for example Courtney, you have who who do you compete with? I want each of you to talk about who you compete with i mean I compete I, the way I think about it is mm-hmm. I keep compete with anybody that is Uh, capturing somebody's attention other than National Geographic. So I think when, you know, when I first joined a few years ago, the thinking was that we competed with the likes of Discovery Channel and History Channel. Um, and so we were very much chasing the audiences of those networks. You know, we've, we've broken away from the pact and, and we're pursuing a much different content strategy, one that's much more aligned with our brand. But the world has changed so much just in the past few years that honestly, we're in the game of, of of just trying to capture people's attention. So I don't think of, I compete with Netflix, I compete with Hulu, I compete with the traditional television networks, I compete with anybody, you know, I compete with Fortnite, I compete with anybody who's, who's yeah. sort of taking a consumer's Time away mm-hmm. from watching National Geographic content
0: on the on the cha- on the traditional channel. Yeah. So how do you think of that when you're pushing video? Is it is it a, is it an online thing now? Because I don't think I watch anything not on demand anymore. I don't believe I do. Yeah.
2: I mean, so look, we are. We certainly still have some viewers that watch news. us
0: I watch you news on. You watch, watch, news. watch news live.
2: I think news and sports still which I'm capture actually a lot. Of turning
0: off because it's so noisy. Yeah.
2: I think news and sports are sort of genres of programming that people still watch live. We still get some viewers that watch us, Mm -hmm. you know, live. um, But mostly, you know, we make our content available as widely as possible across all of our you know, on-demand platforms, our own platforms, 21st Century Fox platforms, Hulu. Um, you know, and ultimately, I think we're very well positioned for a direct-to-consumer world. Be that with a new owner, be that on our own. O T T, just O T T, right? Yeah. You know, we we again we're we're focused on creating really premium, exceptional, creative, creatively excellent content that is aligned with this incredibly vital and relevant and globally beloved brand. Uh, And we have been in a direct-to-consumer business for 130 years, Mm -hmm. if you think about the magazine, right? Right. Publishers have been in a direct-to-consumer business for a really long time. So um, the world is changing rapidly, as we all know. And so I feel most days that I have my one foot firmly planted still in a linear television business world because there's still a lot of revenue that we derive from that. But very much advertising and affiliate revenue, distribution revenue. But we are very focused on the, on, on future proofing this business and creating mm-hmm. the kind of content that will well position us for more of a direct to consumer world.
0: What about you, Susan? In terms how of how do you comp- think? Yeah, how do you think about it now as a, as a editor?
1: Well, you know, I think we're in the thought leader space. We want to do, you know, intellectually important, fact based, science based stories that are relevant that reflect the issues of today that people want to talk about. So I think that. Uh, among others, makes our competition, The Atlantic or The New Yorker, when they cover the kinds of issues that we do, or even The New York Times or The Washington Post, when it comes to coverage of subjects like the environment. You know, we don't cover news per se. We don't cover political news, but we do cover the outcome of policy. And you can see this specifically in the environmental area, where I think we have great brand permission to break news. And we're going to Really beef up our environment team, and I to think to have they, more point of view. No, not to have more point of view. To have more person power, mm-hmm. so we can produce more content. Right. I mean, I think the point of view is telling the truth and getting great stories and doing stories that are important. Oh, it's
0: political now, is it?
1: Well, it shouldn't be, and I I really fight against that. And I think yeah. what we do is just double down and do great stories. Uh-huh. But there is a great opportunity for us in that space as well. You always say, Susan, which I love, is we're we're on the side of science. Mm-hmm. We're on the side of science. We're on the side of the facts, that's and we're on the now, side of the. <laughs> and we're on the side of the planet. I, right. I think it's okay to say we're on the side of the planet. Yeah, mm-hmm. that
0: is a side now, though.
1: Well, nobody wants dirty air and dirty water and unsustainability. Are uh, you sure about that? <laughs> I I believe that.
0: All right, okay. What about you? How do you look at it? Because you're, forget it. I have, my, I have my Snapchat spectacles with me. I want to show you the mm-hmm. latest ones that I just got.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think very similarly to how Susan and Courtney expressed, holistically we think about anyone who is spending time on the topics that we cover, uh, and increasingly you know outlets are covering those topics you know and you know we we talked a little bit about during the new front season group nine the group nine team at mm-hmm. their new front they had I think puppies at the you know in the lobby and they had astronauts on stage and that mm-hmm, very which much
2: is usually our territory. Which is what we do
3: <laughs> um so you know I think that there's our Competition is kind of everyone these days, Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we really think very closely and strategically about leaning into our biggest differentiator. Is that we actually have a mission that we stand for, which is rooted in what the society does. Um, you know that we're advocating for a sustainable planet, uh, and that we want to rally audiences to be a part of that. And that we believe that if we can raise awareness for you know the biggest challenges that we're facing, people are going to care more about mm-hmm. preserving the planet and preserving our kind of our role in the planet. Um, and if we can back that up with kind of the fact that the society is investing in 600 uh, grants year. this year, um, which, by the way, I think it's 46%, 46% were went to women. Mm-hmm. We're going to um, get to that in the next section. Yeah, that that is our biggest differentiator, the fact that we genuinely do stand for something, and that right. is obviously increasingly meaningful to millennial audiences, to Gen Z audiences. It is audiences. interesting. I just
0: did an interesting interview with uh, Rose Marcario from Patagonia, who mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. has a point of view. She does have a point of view. And they're very heavily leaning into that point of view and it's actually causing their revenues to quadruple like because it's really it's interesting she you'd think it would cause strife but she's leaning into her audience and what they want to do and being she's being very outspoken and uh including legal actions and things like
2: that? I think there's a real receptivity today, particularly among millennials, but not exclusive to millennials, mm-hmm. to these purpose-driven brands. <laughs> you know, and we were built as a purpose-driven brand. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting time for us to assume a leadership position in that.
1: I mean, I think we can be a purpose-driven brand. I agree with that. But I think we also need to be fact-based storytellers mm-hmm. mm-hmm. sure. because that is part of the reason that people trust National Geographic. We yep. have got great credibility on these topics. We've been mm-hmm. reporting on them for you know many, many decades. Decades, and we need to make sure that we're among the brands that people, when they see it, they know it's right. You know, even
2: in when we do scripted television, even mm-hmm. when we have done Genius, for example, mm-hmm. it is a hundred percent factually based. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't see dragons on National Geographic Channel, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. when we're doing not narrative one. drama. Not <laughs> Because they don't Just exist, so <laughs>
1: no unicorns, <laughs> no sure. dragons, no sure. dragons.
2: No, I think people expect <laughs> you know real credibility and authenticity in how all of our stories. On why people think they are dragons, so <laughs> oh, maybe
3: not. me right. <laughs> you <don't laughs> know what I'm saying? Anyway, when we get back,
0: we're here talking with the women who run National Geographic: uh, Courtney Monroe, Rachel Weber, and Susan Goldberg. When we get back, we're going to talk about um, some of the, the issues around diversity and how you run a news organization. Now, I'm, I can't even, I know, I, I hate to point it out, but this is unusual to have three women running an entire company essentially, which I'm thrilled with when we get back. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. It lets you privately and securely surf the internet at really fast speeds without being tracked by anyone. ExpressVPN encrypts your traffic and personal data while hiding your IP address. That means hackers, governments, and internet service providers cannot see what you're doing online. And installing ExpressVPN on all your devices is as simple as downloading an app. It only takes a few clicks to install on your desktop, laptop, smartphone, or tablet. For less than $7 a month, you can safely surf public Wi-Fi hotspots in Starbucks, hotels, and airports without having to worry about having your personal data stolen. To take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com slash T-E-T-A. That's expressvpn.com slash T-E-T-A for three months free. Don't put this off. Protect your internet and data with ExpressVPN today. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week, we answer your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. This week, I talked to Anil Dash, CEO of Frog Creek Software... And Neil, what do we talk about besides mangoes? Mostly mangoes, but Mostly. a little bit about tech and how the industry needs to be a little more ethical and thoughtful. And do you think they will be Neil? New? Eventually. Really? You know, if we wait long enough. Right. Well, if you wait, any, everything comes down the river if you wait long enough. That's right. right. Sometime
2: before the sun envelops the earth.
0: Oh, God. That's okay. <laughs> anyway, you can find Two Embarrassed but mangoes. Nonetheless, mangoes. Yeah, mangoes. yeah, yeah. There's
3: a good part there. The Hashtag
0: mangoes. mangoes. You can find Two Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Two Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're back with Susan Goldberg, Rachel Weber and Courtney Monroe from National Geographic. Each of them represents a different part of the organization, digital, uh, television, and uh, magazine. Um, but we're talking about how you coordinate among and between them. And one of the things that I did point out I in the last section was these are all three women running uh, a media company, essentially, um, which is unusual. Silicon Valley, you don't see this. You don't see it almost anywhere. And you just pointed out that 46 percent of um, – the society's grants grant, went to women which is, last year which is astonishing i can't believe that number because it's fair it's actually somewhat fair not exactly fair just almost. almost almost fair T- let's talk about that idea because you you did do a thing on gender uh, last year does that feel that things are changing. I don't feel it's changing at all in
1: tech whatsoever. You mean in the media business? Yeah, in the media business. I think that, um, well, I've got a, I've got a kind of a long-term perspective on this. You right. know, I was the first female editor right. of these two large newspapers that I ran. And it's probably pointed out all the time, it's right? It's pointed out every day. Mm-hmm. I was the first female editor of National Geographic, right? I've been the first female this and that a lot right. of times, but that's because I'm going to be 60 years old next mm-hmm. year. Okay. And so my career developed on this seam of societal change. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I thought that for a long time there in the 90s and in the Earlier two thousands, we were making a lot of progress, right? And then it went backward. Either a and ton what, of women running. There major were a ton paper. of women, and then it went backward. And what the reason I believe is it went backward was because of the financial upheaval in the industry that came with the rise of of the internet, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden nobody wanted to hear about diversity anymore, whether racial or an ethnic or gender mm-hmm. diversity. They or just age. Yeah, or any other kind. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to talk about, okay, how are you going to stay in business? And we let that issue fall off of the table and we let ourselves be told to shut up about it. And we did shut up about it for a long time. And that's just not right. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we've got to get back to, and we are slowly getting back to where this issue is never falling off the table again.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that's
1: amazing about National
2: Geographic, I'm going to be 50. So I spent a long time uh, in my career being the only woman in the room, many instances. But At National Geographic Partners, specifically, eight out of 11 of the most senior executives are women, so Mm -hmm. 72%. So, all of a sudden, I'm often now in a room, at least at National Geographic, Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. dominated by women, which Mm -hmm. is pretty incredible. And... And and National Geographic also does have a history of investing in women, the society side. So Jane Goodall, Mm -hmm. Diane Fossey, Sylvia Earle, who's still around. Some of your big stars. Some of the really big Mm -hmm. stars and some of the most (laughs) remarkable achievements were because National Geographic invested in women. So in some respects, it's in our DNA. But I think the leadership team at National Geographic is still quite unusual. It is unusual.
3: One of the things that I think is really important, you know, this is obvious, but that there's more than one of us. And I think to the employee base to see that there's not this kind of monolithic version of what female leadership is, is, you know, really crucial to kind of seeing yourself in becoming a female leader. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we all have our own unique personalities just because we're different people. So we lead differently. uh, We do different things, which I think kind of you know, gives the employee base a sense of, wait, I can do this and, you know, and rise in that in that area, too. And, and Right. And to your point, there isn't
1: room for just one.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Usually
1: yeah, there's not just one token woman. Right. right. I mean, right. The, the other thing that we're working really hard on is diversifying our staff member, yeah. but also diversifying our sources in yes. storytelling. Right. You know, we've got to make sure that we're not quoting all white male scientists when yeah. we're doing these global stories right. about a about diverse next. world. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That is incredibly important. And, you know, that is can be kind of a long slog, but we have made a lot of progress. We're not where we need to be yet, but we have made a ton of progress, both in who we're assigning to stories, who's taking our pictures, mm-hmm. and who we're quoting mm-hmm. as experts in stories.
0: And how do you make that shift? Because one of the things, I was just interviewing Cheryl Sandberg on, a, on another, I interviewed several times recently, this is on a, at a, a women's event, essentially, and she was talking about the idea that that not people have to move aside, that men have to move aside, really, because there's no space. Like, you can't get more women in positions of power if men don't. Move over on boards, for example. If there's 10 men on a board, two of them have to leave or four of them have to leave or something like that. And it, she was trying to create a situation where you do get that flywheel going, um, which I thought was interesting because there y- you do have the people who are good at what they're good at, right? Mm-hmm. So it's hard to mix the qual- – like there's more male directors, and so that's more to choose from and or more – same thing in tech, actually, if you think about it. More en- male engineers, there's more mm-hmm. – I think it's or interesting. Diverse, I mean, more white male engineers.
3: Really, I do think there is something to the we have to make it we have to make it easier to give women a chance to kind of play their role. So, for on Instagram, for example, we it's a really special way that we uh, run our Instagram account. It's something we're famous for. We have almost ninety million uh, followers there. What? And yeah, that's
0: a lot. It's almost Kim Kardashian level. Yeah, we're not, not quite. quite. Yeah, not not quite. Just, we're going to get it. We're, we're the biggest non-celebrity
3: massive. Instagram account, right. um, and it's that way because it's in the hands of our photographers. Mm-hmm. So we have, I think, 128 photographers that have access to the account. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not an area where we are yet where we want to be. So they have uh, access. They can. They have access. Right. So the way that we used to do it is that they all had access, and we had these rules where every three hours uh, someone could post, and that's why it's. That's why it works because mm-hmm. it's so authentic. It's coming from our photographers out there in the field. They're telling these stories. It's really a version of our journalism. Mm-hmm. And But what we're seeing is we have 25% of that 128 are women, uh, which is above the industry a- average, but it's not where obviously we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a little bit scarier is that the actual contribution, though, the Always. number of posts that we're getting, well, it's about 15% are women. And one of the things that we heard from our female photographer community was that Men were offering jump in the, jumping the queue, mm-hmm. so every three hours, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and so a man might go in there at two hours and fifty-five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's where. So one of the things that we just changed, actually, we've been kind of wow, wor- that's working fascinating. on figuring because women
1: are rules followers. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and and they were they were letting themselves get you know yeah. pushed yeah. pushed around yeah. essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. It's another version of that the workplace. Riveting. So we
3: changed the publishing <laughs> approach. So right. now people can't post directly; they actually have to submit it to us via a social publishing tool. So you have and to then we stop we're, the aggression. And then we're we are reprogramming it. Correct. We'll see how that you know how that impacts. We've also seen that we actually we have to—you know, we're, we're reaching out, I think, to your question of how do you change it. You just do it. You just right. start engaging in yeah. the conversation. But see what happened. You did
0: it, and then look what—it's really interesting. I was in a line at Union Station the other day coming in, and literally this guy walked right to the front and was chatting up the guy. And there was a long, obvious line. It was so—I put it on Twitter because I, I was just astonished by it. Staggering. Staggering. And, like, there literally was a line, and— um, and the, uh, this guy tries to get in a cab right there. Like, was an obvious line. And then the guy goes, oh, no, there's a line. You need to stand it. And he's like, oh, I didn't—there was a line. What? What? And, guess, and this one woman goes, <laughs> um, uh, ha- hashtag lines up.
1: Uh, which was, <laughs> oh,
0: that's pretty funny. Which was great. And the other is like, welcome to the back of the line, dude. And it was you know, so—it was such a moment. And I was like—it was very pleasing to me on many levels. But it was fascinating, line jumping.
2: I, I think, look— The way it's going to happen, as you just said, Rachel, is like we have to be intentional Mm -hmm. about it and we have to make it a huge priority. And Mm -hmm. I think as women leaders... And not just
0: women, people of color, but in In Hollywood, where do you choose from when you're doing it? Well, I just
2: made a... I'm on the... um, I had the great opportunity to serve on the board of makers Mm -hmm. now. And so I made a pledge on the stage at the conference this year that by the end of 2020, the number of female-led companies with whom we partner, be that production companies, be that marketing agencies, be that PR firms, will equal the number of male-led companies. You just have to do it. Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are more male-led production companies, Mm
1: -hmm. but... I'm going to work with 50% of them that are female-led, period, full stop. And you have to do it with every single choice. So Mm -hmm. every story assignment, every photography assignment, we've got to get in the heads of our editors and reporters that they need to really reach out to diverse sources Mm -hmm. and you can only change it by changing it one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And that is the only way I know to do it. Right. Um, you know, I, I worry a little bit about this notion of, you know, we got to get the men to leave. Because right. I don't really think it's going to work if somehow the men feel like it is the enemies. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like they become the right. enemy. I think what we've got to do is make sure all of these male CEOs see that it's in their interest to have a diverse workplace right. because it's a better workplace. Right.
0: But I think one of the issues is that there's only so much room. There is also only so much space, At only under on yeah. three hours, yeah. and and therefore, people who've taken up more space have to take up less space. There's just no way around that. To me, it's it's a, it's I think I think about it a lot when I'm doing editing, and you know, our staff goes up and down in terms of all kinds of different factors of diversity. It shouldn't be the only thing, but it should really be because it's this it's me not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. I think about it with our conferences um, and everything else. Um, what I find really interesting is is forcing people of color, like getting people to stand on stage and stuff like mm-hmm. that, which is really harder. But why would they? Because they never get to. You know what right. I mean? It's a re- it's a really it's a really vexing problem, and it, it it does require. Like I talk about Silicon Valley people, they w- when it's priority number fourteen, right. It's on the list of priorities. It's just not priority number two. No, it one can't one. get pushed
1: off the can't. table. It's always or it'll fourteen. Never yeah. yeah, which
0: is interesting. All right, I want to finish up talking about not just that, but just what are the biggest challenges you guys think you face going forward in each of your areas and, and as a group. Like what in terms of media, in terms of consumers, I'm worried about the twitchy culture, the um, the f- lack of substance. Um, although we're going in an opposite direction and doing really well, because I think people are desirous of substance very badly because mm-hmm. of the twitchy uh, Twitter cesspool culture, essentially. Um, talk about each of you what you think is the biggest challenge you face as a media as a media when you're thinking about media going forward what do you imagine the worst case scenario of it degenerating into and maybe the
1: best case Um, uh, well I agree with you that I think people do want substance. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this up-and-coming generation just wants, you know, crap to read and and, and hear bad, you know, read bad stories and, and mm-hmm. he, listen to bad television. I, and I think that's why we've all invested and doubled down in the production of substantive content across our platforms. So, th- you know, that's something I take some solace in. Uh, I like the fact that we cover things that millennials actually care about, right? Mm-hmm. They care about the human journey and cultures and they care about science and innovation. They care about uh, you know, the sustainability of the planet. Luckily for us, those are the things that we cover. Um, what I worry about is is the underlying business model um, of of legacy media. Mm-hmm. Now, we're very lucky in that we have a super diverse company. And so, you know, we, the the problems of print media, particularly, at least have been mitigated because we are a diverse company. Mm-hmm. But these problems are not going to go away. And mm-hmm. so, you know, figuring out how to grapple with those at the same time, we're continuing to, you know, the future of news and information. That's mm-hmm. what I think is the challenge for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, similarly, on the one hand, I think this is the most exciting and dynamic time ever in the history of media business. On the other t- hand, it's a time of tremendous disruption and competition and fragmentation. So, you know, it's there's an arms race for talent. There's an arms race mm-hmm. to get people to, you know, to... To get people to pay attention to what you're doing and to mm-hmm. break through, so I really like our chances because of the power of our brand and the type of content and storytelling and the benefit that we have of our structure of sort of the power of the National Geographic Society and the power of 21st Century Fox or whoever becomes
1: our new owner. No
0: matter what, you're going to get a theme park ride, which <laughs> is great. My <laughs> kids will be really it. happy. Just think about it. Your My kids get, will be gonna be really like happy. The National Geographic tour of the plastics
3: or something. Yeah, I <laughs> <Why laughs> don't
2: not? know how fun
0: that why not? sounds.
3: The plastic. Why not? No. Maybe. Explorer Land. Yeah, I explore mean, land. we yeah. stand for enabling yeah. you to explore your world. You're getting world. At the one. Park could ride. argue that Animal Kingdom
2: should be yeah. National Geographic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. But anyway, so I like our. Who chances. owns that? Animal Kingdom? Which Disney.
0: one? All right. Whatever. Comcast has one. I know they've got. I've been to
2: Universal. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No,
0: they have, Must have. some. Oh, they have some. I'm yeah. sure they do. Yeah. Which one has Harry Potter?
2: Uh, Universal. Universal has yeah.
0: Harry Potter, right? Okay. Well, whatever. Whatever. You're, you're going in these. We're, we're go- I'm place. going on a ride someplace. <laughs> yes. Right. <you> are. <laughs> going on a ride.
2: So anyway, yeah, I think it's it's an incredibly challenging time, but I um, and it keeps me up at night for sure. But I think we are well positioned as a brand and a business, and I think we're undergoing an incredibly ambitious transformation in terms of the type of stories we tell at a time when transformational change has never been more critical. So.
3: To finish yeah. up if you, Rachel. Were- I think the great irony of social media is that it often makes us feel more disconnected. And I think our brand actually has the unique power to give you a sense of belonging to something that matters. Um, And, you know, so I think we feel that what we need to focus on is kind of building out these community experiences where we are taking all of this attention and engagement that we get across all of these kind of third-party social platforms with with this amazing content that we have and, you know, kind of really, really deepening those relationships and enabling people to participate and connect with each other. Um, You know, so things like, I talked a little bit about Your Shot, but we just a couple of months ago launched this platform called Open Explorer, which is kind of like a Tumblr for exploration. It's just Mm -hmm. a digital field journal that is a platform for citizen scientists um, and also a platform for citizen scientists to connect with our big e-explorers. So they put like a Tumblr, just 100% less porn. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, yes, we are moderating this very yeah, carefully. Yeah. Um, it's very new. We have 500 expeditions yeah. on there, but what we saw is that we have this community of people who that stories. who want to tell stories mm-hmm. and who are out there in the field doing incredible work. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have teenagers in Chicago who are searching for meteorites mm-hmm. um, in Lake Michigan. We have um, you know we have this amazing academic that is working with um, student groups to go hunt for nautilus eggs, which mm-hmm. is a over 500 million year old species that. Could be destroyed over the next 50 years. So, to kind of, you know, some of, we were seeing some of that activity already happen on social platforms, but it wasn't really the right platform for people to be logging their expeditions right. and to connect with each other. So, I think, you know, there's enormous challenges that we face and headwinds in the digital advertising mm-hmm. space and, you know, you name it. But I think we actually do believe in the era where, uh, you know, people want to. Be a part of something and want to belong to something. National Geographic can be really be that kind so of rallying brand. Each,
0: finally, to end up, what is the most important social media platform for each of your areas? For yours, would you
2: Instagram? Instagram.
3: I think that's across
1: the board. Instagram. I agree. Instagram. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's so us. It's visual. visual. Yeah. It's visual. These are the voices of our photographers. These are the images, which is what people associate with National Geographic in the first place.
0: Right. Fascinating. That's really interesting. We. When you know, f- that's owned by Facebook.
3: <laughs> we. We know. <laughs> I mean, my favorite story of, you know, the history of National Geographic is that when the first images were put into the magazine, there were a couple of board members that actually resigned in protest that wow. this science magazine was turning into a quote-unquote picture book. And you fast forward over 100 years, and we have ninety almost 90 million followers on an Instagram account sure. it's, But because we have visual storytelling in our yeah. DNA.
1: Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, that's a good thing to end on. Did they quit? They just— they didn't like this new picture thing. They marched off because they thought it was a dumbed-down picture book. Uh-huh. Can you believe it?
0: Where till we get into VR. We didn't even get into that. I hope you're all working on that. Oh,
1: yeah.
3: We That's are. it's huge are. for us.
0: Huge. Huge. It's a fascinating area. You know, you guys absolutely...
3: Well, but it just deepens experiences. Yeah. and enables people if to done go, right. go somewhere. And we were so, the first ones this
2: past year. We um, shot the first ever VR on um, the International Space Station. Mm-hmm.
3: Right, I saw
0: that. It was great. It was really good. Some of it's going to be. We don't even know where we're going with this. I mean, I, I, it's going to be so astonishing. I think if we do it right, it could be incredibly stupid. That's my that's my worry. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You can just see it going yeah. like sideways, the way Twitter did, just like whoa,
3: where'd you go? What no come back. But I do <laughs> think for education, for medical uses, yeah. it's really it's really powerful. And travel. Yes, I yeah, you know. You are a Over 50% of the U.S. still doesn't have a passport,
0: so. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. It was great. This was a really great conversation. Thank you so much, Courtney, Rachel, and Susan. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps them discover great interviews just like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then.
3: Today's show is brought to you by Facebook. In 2017, Facebook hit more than 2 billion users, and then at the beginning of 2018, Facebook found itself at the center of a broader conversation happening around the spread of fake news on the internet. To help shed some light on the work that goes into the fight against misinformation, Facebook partnered with documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville to create a short film called Facing Facts. Facing Facts takes viewers inside Facebook headquarters to learn more about the complex challenges the social network is facing. It's a unique opportunity to pull back the curtain and take a critical look at how Facebook is addressing these issues. Get an inside look at Facebook's fight against misinformation. Watch the film at InsideFeed.com.